Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast brought to you by the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Jamie Coleman, and throughout this series, Dr. Dante Ye and I will speak with recently published authors about the motivation behind their latest research and the clinical implications it has for the practicing surgeon. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast from the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Dante Ye, one of your co-hosts for this series. In this episode, we'll be taking an in-depth look into the current article, Truth of Colorectal Enhanced Recovery Programs, Process Measure Compliance in 151 Hospitals. I'm honored today to be joined by the author, Tejin Shah, MD, from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Shah, thank you for joining me today. Uh, before we begin, do you have any potential conflicts of interest to disclose? Uh, no, I don't have it. Can you give us a brief summary of your study design and describe to us your main findings? Sure. Um, so enhanced recovery programs have largely become the norm in perioperative care uh, for patients undergoing elective colorectal surgery. And there is a large amount of evidence from large institutions that have reported that when you implement colorectal enhanced recovery programs, you get significant improvement in process measure compliance, which is about more than 20% improvement from where you started and your outcomes significantly improve. And so what we did in our study was to evaluate improvement uniformity among 151 hospitals that were exposed to an 18 month implementation protocol for six colorectal enhanced uh, recovery process measures, uh, which were oral antibiotic prophylaxis, mechanical bowel prep, multimodal pain control, early mobilization, early liquids, and early solids. And this essentially was part of a program um, from the uh, ICR, which is uh, the Improvement uh, Surgical Care and Recovery Program. And this, the idea was to implement these enhanced recovery prog programs across hospitals in the, in the United States. And so the 151 hospitals that we looked at in our study, what we found is that 85% of hospitals in our sample did not achieve substantial improvement in their process measure compliance. And when you look at the 151 hospitals times the six process measures we looked at, which comes out to 663 total available opportunities for improvement, 80% of these opportunities did not achieve substantial improvement. Uh, the simple process measures like multimodal pain control and oral antibiotics improved by 23 to 16%, but more resource-intensive process measures like oral mobilization, early solids, early liquids improved the least by 2 to 7%. All of this highlights the fact that implementation of ERAS protocols is difficult. Uh, ERAS protocols are not one-size-fits-all and that they are very dependent on the local context. Great, thank you. That was a, uh, that was a great high level you know, introduction to your study. There's a lot to, to pick apart here. We can drill down to a lot of details and then I have some questions, but first, why don't we start broad? Uh, tell me some more about this Improving Surgical Care and Recovery, the ISCR project. How did it begin? 
who is sponsoring this project? Like, where's the money coming from? Uh, and, and on the, at this local level at the site, who is uploading the data? So the Improving Surgical Care and Recovery Program is funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, AHRQ. And this program is a collaboration between the American College of Surgeons, uh, John Hopkins Armstrong Institute for Patient Safety and Quality, and, and, and AHRQ. Uh, the primary aim, essentially, like I said, is to accelerate the adoption of enhanced recovery practices in the United States across multiple subspecialties, colorectal, OBGYN, orthopedics, emergency general surgery, by providing hospitals with evidence-based toolkits, implementation resources, and coaching webinars. Um, and these hospitals that participate in the program volunteered to participate. And each hospital had their individual surgical clinical reviewers that extracted data from their, in, from their individual um, electronic health records using standard data definitions and uploaded them onto the ISDR data registry, which is built on the NISQIP platform. Awesome. Thank you. Um, do you. What other previous findings or publications have resulted from this collaborative project? So Dr. Clifford Coe and Dr. Elizabeth Wick are the principal investigators in the ICR program. And uh, Chelsea Fisher, who was a clinical scholar at the American College of Surgeons, have published a couple of studies from the ICR project. Uh, one that highlighted the feasibility of implementing enhanced recovery programs for emergent colorectal surgeries, but so not just elective surgeries. Uh, they've also looked at ERAS, how ERAS implementation is dependent on the local environment the leadership commitment and the culture, as well as the association between compliance to process measures and outcomes for ERAS. I see, I see. So it sounds like a massive project with a long history behind it and presumably and hopefully a long future uh, ahead yeah. of it. Um, you know, ERAS is been hot. It's so hot for, for at least 10 years that I can think of probably longer. And it's it's still you know uh, generating a lot of interest. I, I see it as sort of um, taking the logical next progression in in its evolution. You know um, these bundles that that uh, that we're seeing they start off locally, they get some external validity, and then we try to scale up. And from what I'm understanding from your study, uh, we're having some difficulty with scaling up with with getting the compliance. Uh, part of it. You focused only specifically on six process measures. Can you remind me again what those six were? Yes. Uh, so the six process measures we looked at were oral antibiotic prophylaxis, mechanical bowel prep, early mobilization, early solids, early liquids, and multimodal pain control. All right. So these six um, have the problem with the bundle, as you know, is that if you show that the bundle works, that's great. But what is the relative weight or contribution of each of those individual bundle components? You know, that's that's been as a trauma critical care surgeon, I'm I'm most familiar with you know catheter care bundles uh, from the Peter Pronovos um, you know studies. I'm also uh, int intimately on. Familiar with the sepsis care bundles. Um, we can talk about that a little bit later. But ha have each of these six uh, measures that you examined have they been individually 
validated as, as having a positive impact on patient outcomes? Yeah, so the ASCRS and Stages uh, released their col colorectal ERAS guidelines in 2023, where they reviewed the evidence behind 26 different ERAS process measures. And uh, within these 26, there were six that we looked at as part of our study. And they graded those six as a 1B recommendation, which was a strong recommendation with moderate quality evidence. Uh, and moderate quality evidence was defined as, our, as randomized clinical trials with some limitations. Uh, mm -hmm. There are some nuances. So randomized clinical trials that looked at mechanical bowel prep alone did not find it to reduce uh, surgical site infections, but randomized clinical trials that looked at mechanical bowel prep combined with oral antibiotics did show to reduce SSI. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at uh, different RCTs have different definitions of early liquids and early solids, but early feeding in general has been shown to reduce length of stay in randomized clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And then when the prior uh, study I mentioned uh, as part of the ICR project looked at the ERP bundle of these six process measures, and they showed that the full adherence to the ERP bundle compared to partial adherence was associated with better surgical outcomes, particularly decreased SSI, readmission rates, and, and the length of stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it sounds like a really complex relationship um, that perhaps it's synergistic, right? Like, so the bowel prep is only useful if it's combined with the oral antibiotics. The, the early liquid intake and early solid intake it's hard for me to wrap my head around how I would code it because does one sip of, of ginger ale count as early liquid intake? How much of your meal do you have to eat, you know, in order to, uh, to qualify as a checkmark? Yes. For early solid intake. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the, that's the challenge. So there, there are a lot of different definitions of it. And for the purposes of our, of, of our study, it was more of a binary uh, definition of a yes or no, if you took it or no, and whether that was documented. But uh, like I said, there's a lot of variability in, the, in, mm -hmm. the, in, the, in kind of the literature about what qualifies as early solids and early liquids and where you draw the line. Um, and right. so, yeah, I think a lot more studies are needed to prove that. And I, I assume the same holds true for early post-operative mobilization. Right. There was no yes. universal definition of, OK, well, you have to walk, you know, 50 feet or 10, me 10 meters or something in order to qualify. Yeah. So in our study, our definition uh, for mobilization was uh, ambulating a distance of 10 feet or more or uh, ambulating okay. a duration of two, two minutes or more with or without assistance of a walking aid. That was the standard definition we used. Uh, and there, but there in the literature, this is not a standard definition. I think everybody uses their own thing. I see. Got it. All right. Well, it sounds like you, um, you included a, a, a smaller cohort. So first of all, hospitals who wanted to participate in this, they're, they're already self-selecting anyway, because it's not mandatory and it's volunteer, right? It, it, they're not getting paid any support for this. So they have yes. to have some sort of interest to begin with to even participate but with but if i'm reading your study correctly out of the original 262 study uh, hospitals that reported mandatory process outcomes you only selected 151 so it was even more selective uh, um, cohort or or subset and and so we're we're 
really looking at the most motivated and interested and possibly the best of the best. And yet they struggled to, to improve process measure compliance. Is, is it, am I interpreting it correctly? Exactly. Yes. The, these are the hospitals that were the most motivated that you could assume. And they wanted to make ERAS a success, but found it more difficult than anticipated. And the reason we included 151 hospitals is that the initial sample of 262 hospitals volunteered, but a lot of them for a variety of reasons didn't continue to report their process measure compliance. So the 151 hospitals we included reported cases in the first or second month of their cohort and through to their 11th and 12th month of the cohort. So that's why we could see improvement over time and the other hospitals for some reason or the other other um, decided not to continue to participate. I see. But yes, I understand. but yes, it, um, when you, if we were to include everybody, I think our study essentially underestimates likely how difficult it is to, to implement ERAS. And can you maybe conjecture, can, can you, can you sort of tell me what, what you think explains why they had difficulty in proving their compliance? I think, one of the biggest things we're finding is that an ERAS implementation is similar to quality improvement in the surgical world. And quality improvement and ERAS implementation are very dependent on your local context. Um, local context meaning your local environment, the resources that you have available, the time constraints that you have. And those things really affect how you're able to do it. So when, when we look at why certain process measure compliance like um, multimodal pain control uh, did better as compared to early mobilization, one, I think our assumption there is that things like multimodal pain control are simple interventions. They require just one provider to write a prescription that is well-documented versus early mobilization is a more resource intensive process measure. It requires a multidisciplinary effort. You need, P you need physical therapists, occupational therapists, nurses to help mobilize the patient to document that mobilization effort. You need advanced practice providers, surgeons, residents to encourage patients to ambulate on a daily basis. And the patients themselves have to be motivated. All of this cuts across the entire hospital and, like I said, bumps up against resource constraints, time constraints, that makes it difficult to improve. So I think it's yeah. that local context and resource availability that's difficult. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. So I, I, I also understand how with these constraints in place, it would be uh, reasonable to expect that compliance remained unchanged. But it looks like compliance actually worsened in, in almost 30% of, of your uh, included process measures, which is cause for concern uh, if, if you believe that compliance, it will translate into, into improved uh, patient outcomes. Now, reading your methods, it, it seems like you also, you know, at the outset, you excluded opportunities uh, that had a baseline compliance rate greater than 80% in order to avoid a ceiling effect. However, given that almost 30% of your included process measures had a worsening in compliance, is it possible that some of your excluded high compliance process measures also had a similar decrease in compliance over the study period? 
Yeah, um, so we did take a look at the ones that we excluded to see how they turned out. And compliance did worsen for in 30 to 35% of those excluded instances. But I think the important thing to characterize there is that the absolute change was pretty minimal. So a hospital most likely went from 92% to 90% or 92 to 91%, which is which a 1% change is likely not clinically significant, even though it would be defined as worsening compliance. Got it. Got it. All right. Um, so can I ask you, I'd like you to uh, explain explain or clarify something to me about the statistical methods that you used. Uh, you used a logistic random effect model using hospital as random intercept and the subject for a random effect of time. Uh, can you explain to me in layman's terms the difference between a random effects versus a fixed effects model and why you chose to treat the hospital and subject as random? A fixed effect model assumes that independent variable has a constant relationship with the dependent variable across all observations. While a random effect model recognizes that data points may have systematic groupings that may cause the effect to vary from one observation to another. Uh, the reason we chose a random effects model is that we believe different hospitals have different resources that are likely to make their ability to improve or change also be different at the hospital level. And since our aim was to look at change over time, we needed time to be random. We needed hospital to be the subject or grouping of that random effect. And each hospital is likely to have its own baseline. So we included a random intercept for that hospital. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna try and wrap my head around this, but if, if I'm understanding you correctly, the, there's something unique about every hospital um, that that is sort of, specific to that local environment, which makes it special. And so it's kind of like a clustering effect. So the, the patients who are treated within that hospital are more alike to each other than patients treated at another hospital. It's, is that sort of? I would say it's, it's not more so the, the patients who are treated are more alike. It's that the hospital environment is more alike and the mm -hmm. resources the hospital has is more alike. And mm -hmm. so I think, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a statistician and this is simplifying it a lot, but when you, when you think about fixed effects, think about, let's say if you were to compare two different race cars and you, you're comparing a Lamborghini to a Ferrari, um, and you're comparing acceleration for those things. Now that would be looking at a fixed effect. If you were to look at, um, a random effect, you'd be looking at a lot of different types of, you would be looking at a sports car, you'd be looking at a car that we regularly drive on the road, like a Honda or a Toyota. And there would be those, essentially those car models have a systematic grouping that affects their acceleration. So that's, if that, if that makes sense. Um, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. Uh, that helps to clarify in my mind. I, I appreciate the analogy, thank you. Um, all right. I know the, the purpose, or let's say the, the focus of this study was on the compliance and process measures, but did you have any data about patient outcomes? No, so uh, there are other parts of the study with the ICR project that are evaluating the patient outcomes. We specifically uh, decided to focus on compliance because the literature around compliance wasn't as well-developed as the one around outcomes. 
And so we really wanted to highlight the implementation challenges with ERAS, and that's why we decided to specifically focus on compliance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's uh, this bridge from knowledge to action, right? The, there's a whole field of science, implementation science that has sprung up to, to try and help us translate for, to, to, from the bench to the bedside. And if, if I'm not mistaken, right, the Institute of Medicine said that it takes about 17 years. So yeah. uh, <laughs> I, think, I think we're we got a long road ahead of us. Great. Exactly. Well, let me ask you, what's what's next? What are the next steps for you as a researcher? How how are you going to build upon your findings from this current study? So I think as I've talked about, everyone involved with this ISDR project was really passionate about ERAS and they put in a lot of effort. And essentially what the study highlighted was that the implementation is a challenge and that it's not a one size fits all. Um, so we are really thinking about looking at implementation of each process measure as a QI project in itself. And our next steps are to really figure out how to address those implementation barriers and provide resources to healthcare providers to not only better implement ERAS, but also better conduct all different types of surgical improvement efforts. And in, in our work with the American College of Surgeons, we have already published uh, the first version of the surgical quality improvement framework, as well as launch the QI basics course that's gonna support providers in conducting better improvement efforts. And we're working on further developing these projects. Uh, so it's a lot of work towards the implementation side of things. Sounds like a lot of work. And I'm grateful that, that you have the passion and the uh, expertise to, to, to continue this, this important work. Well, I, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Shah. Uh, thank you for listening to the operative word. Please send us any feedback at postmaster at facs.org. Thank you for listening to the Journal of the American College of Surgeons Operative Word Podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, spread the word on social media by using the hashtag JACS Operative Word. Subscribe to The Operative Word wherever podcasts are available or listen on the American College of Surgeons website at facs.org slash podcast.